All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? And how do you get it? I'm your host, Jeff Coulard. Welcome to the show. It is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship itself. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Okay, welcome back to another episode of Powerful. My name is Jeff Coulard and I'm your host. And today I'm really excited about a friend and colleague of mine, Pablo Romero, who I've done a lot of work with over the past couple of years. And I learn something new every time we sit down to have a chat about human-centered design, the employee experience, and leadership and life more broadly. So I'm excited to have him on the show to chat about all of those things and probably more. Uh, Pablo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for carving out some time on a Monday night to sit down and chat all of those things with me. Ah, thanks for having me. As I said, uh, this is my first, I think my first podcast interview. So a bit nervous, but uh, but equally excited and couldn't be in safer hands. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for choosing to do your first one here on the show uh, on Powerful. So awesome. <laughs> let's, uh, let's dig into it a little bit. Let's, let's introduce the audience to you. Um, what's your background and kind of when people ask you, what do you do? What, how do you answer that question these days? Yeah, it depends. Uh, I mean, I do, I wear a lot of hats, Jeff, as a father, husband, and, uh, you know, professional, but if we're, if we're focusing on the work stuff, um, you know, I, I love to design and develop resilient, adaptive, and what I call game changing teams. Um, and then that kind of spurs me into some conversation. Uh, my background I actually started off uh, educational-wise, uh, economics and sociology, um, and from there, kind of launched off into customer experience and, in in, as you know, the marketing and the brand space. Um, had a had a quite the experience, uh, workplace experience, which then transitioned me into taking what I learned in designing exceptional experiences for consumers, in-house for employees. Can we talk about that? Can we dig into that piece yeah. of the journey? Because I think it seems strikes me like it's a fairly like we all have critical points in the path that are kind of game changers for us and and our trajectory. And I know you had a pretty significant one. So can you fill us in on on what that path was like and some of the maybe some of the learnings or the insights that came out of that for you? Yeah. Oh boy. Um, you know, it's funny. My my wife before we were married used to call me Pablo Overdo at Romero. I did everything fast and quick. <laughs> You know, and, um, you know, my career was was a great example of that where, you know, I was, you know, fresh into the work world, joined an organization that was, you know, really playing that finite game, you know, <laughs> all about um, achievement in the sense of, you know, money, status, um, power, you know, just like your show is called. And it was addictive as a young person. And so that took me really fast through my career without having the proper mentorship, coaching, supports. I mean, I was 20, what, four? Like, come on now. <laughs> um, anyways, it, the opportunity had me move to the other side of the world in Singapore uh, with a, an investment firm, real estate investment firm. And, you know, not to speak bad uh, about the, the organization because I've, I've gained so much uh, through my experience there. But it definitely, it was a highly stressful workplace. Um, you know, you know, especially when you take, uh, you know, the mindset that I had at that age. Um, and it was a very competitive one. And it was the, you know, the analogy, the carrot and the stick. That's exactly what it was. And it was done very well. Um, fast forward, uh, I was basically constantly going every day uh, to work and after work carrying this high level of stress. And, and for me, it's fight. <laughs> so everything looks good on the outside and everything inside is just taking the beating, right? And so, you know, I was doing well on the outside, you know, rising to the occasion through that, that you know, fight response that I had, but I was slowly deteriorating. And in 2009, um, I got news that I had ulcerative colitis. And for those of you who don't know what ulcerative colitis is, 
it's considered autoimmune. Uh, basically, my large intestine thought something was going on. It was, and it was, my body was in this state of stress and it starts attacking itself. And so you've got ulcers, you can't keep anything in, you're losing blood internally. Um, you feel like, you know, you've got arthritis. Um, yeah, you know, from a, from a guy who played competitive soccer, always was healthy and fit his whole life to, to just be humbled and brought back, um, you know, grounded, it, it was tough. Um, and that was my turning point, um, actually being afraid to die. Yeah, it's amazing what that will do for perspective shifting. That's that something when something when you go from like invincible to suddenly invincible, or like suddenly there's like some really, you know, I had a similar turning point in, in my journey. It was diabetes for me, also autoimmune, also probably stress induced. Right. So I think that, you know, there's a a theory that out there that you know the body keeps the score when it comes to stress the body's going to like just keep track of all of the shit that we put ourselves through and eventually something's going to give if it's not our our emotional wellness and our mental wellness it's our physical wellness or it's both right like sometimes it hits us in both ways so so 2009 you were diagnosed with ulcerative colitis what was the journey like from there and and kind of where are you now it's kind of a decade or so later um what's what what changed for you yeah, so 2009, um, I get diagnosed. Um, it starts to get worse and worse. I'm taking medication, but, you know, no one really knows much about the disease at that time. So they're like, take this pill, continue on. <laughs> High levels of stress. Um, you know, going to work every day in fear of, of getting fired for saying or doing the wrong thing. So, you know, starting to have a conscious or, you know, or more consciousness about my core values, starting to explore those. You know, being scared about death really opens you up to am I truly living right now, right? You know, our good friend Ernest uh, introduced us to the book, The Untethered Soul. I mean, shit, like <laughs> if you knew you were going to die at the end of the week, would you be living the way you are right now? I bet most of us would probably answer no, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, I was, uh, I was going to work like that every day. I had a baby on the way. <laughs> um, you know, my relationship, my wife was about to leave me because I was working 16-hour days, so I was going to lose, you know, the love of my life. Um, our dog, like this is all happening at once. This is why I talk about resiliency and adaptiveness. Our dog, our little, our first baby, Singa, you know, she got super sick, poisoned and was, had a 20% chance of survival. So all these things were coming in down on us at once. And we literally looked at each other, my wife and I, and we said, can we swear on this thing? Fuck it. <laughs> you know, like this is not the path that we know that we should be on right now. And so we decided to just stop that quit get on a plane and come back home um and i was back home and i think my body caught up and 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 it just went full blown and so just so you so you know with 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 severe colitis you go to the bathroom like 40 times a day you can't get anything done (laughs) never mind never mind all the other things in between um so that was my my lowest point in terms of um and I, and I wanted to, you know, for me, I was, I remember at that time, there was that, that Rumi quote. Are you familiar with that one? Um, where the wound is the place where the light enters you. Mm. And, and Laura was, was super spiritual. And I think that's what kind of moved me into this, this spiritual journey. And for me, spirituality is, um, you know, it's about connection, deep connection with the other people that are in my life and how many people can I connect with in this world. And, and you know, this, I'm a connector. I, I'm on a mission to meet as many people as I can. Um, and see if I can impact their lives in, you know, one way or the other. And so, you know, I, I, I use this to kind of take all my skills, my experience, and start to apply it to my life, um, designing my life and my, my career, which put me on the path of, wow, do workplaces ha- not have a duty and a service to the people that they're supposed to care for and the communities that they're a part of? And so... That's if you want to call it my my personal passion and my purpose has been on that journey, which has led me to great people like you. Mm-hmm. It's the the mission that you're on these days is to it is rehabilitate the workplace experience. I think for for people because it doesn't have to burn us out, it doesn't have to stress us out to the point where we're having to choose, you know, health over work or health over um, yeah making making the impact that we want to make in the world. Um, 
Awesome. Those of you who are tuned in live, feel free to ask us questions anytime. Drop a comment if you want to learn more about a particular thing. If I miss something important and you're like, hey, hold on, you need to ask Pablo this, make sure you drop that question into the comments and we'll uh, we'll throw it up on the screen and we'll and we'll chat with it. Um, but maybe let's let's shift gears just a little bit into some of the things that I promised people we would talk about and I'm always interested in, which is some of the work that you're doing now these days mm-hmm. and have been for the past kind of well decade or so around this employee experience, human-centered design, and building these game-changing teams. And so why don't we start with like maybe some of the the pieces or or things that you see in organizations that you think need to change or you know what are some of the commonalities amongst our companies and our organizations that aren't contributing to adaptive capacity aren't contributing to wellness for the for the workforce or for the people that they serve um do you have anything that kind of jumps to mind as far as like if you could change a couple of things what would you go in or what do you find yourself talking a lot about yeah, I would say I've been thinking about this lately uh, in terms, you know, of the work you, myself and Kim are doing and, and just even in our process as a team going through these motions. I mean, we've built up a lot of psychological safety, which for me is it's an environment that you and I and Kim feel like we can take interpersonal risks with each other because we, we're vulnerable. We feel seen and heard. And so we've got these great foundational elements that I know in a lot of organizations out there have. And so we've got cohesion, we've got harmony, we've got alignment. But I think one thing that a lot of these organizations are missing is the tension. Like, man, the tension, that's like, especially with all this, um, you know, work that organizations are doing around diversity and inclusion, tension is the diversity with the inclusion. Otherwise, I love the analogy, I think IDO uses it. Otherwise, it's, it's, a, it's like a leaky cup. You've got the diversity, you're filling it in, but it's, the inclusion's not there, so it's all falling out. And tension is that way for organizations and their teams to really get into um, those conversations to really truly innovate and create in a diverse way, or sorry, a diverse way. Um, so I would say tension is one thing I would love to see organizations doing more, like getting into that healthy tension. You, you and Kim have done an amazing uh, job at creating some some tools, strategies around art. Uh, breaking through artificial harmony. Like, I think that's so important right now. Sorry, you're going to say something. Well, I was just going to ask you about like the tension piece. Like when you're, when you're describing tension, is that like differences of opinion, differences of like what creates the tension? And, and cause a lot of people like, so conflict, if we just jump into conflict for a second, kind of lives on a spectrum, right? And you've identified artificial harmony. So that lives on the one side where we kind of avoid conflict and we're not really digging into it. There's unhealthy conflict. We've probably all experienced that in our life it's not super productive right like we're judgment the tension is there judgment (laughs) and there's tone of voice and there's like no solutions out of it it's just venting and complaining maybe um there's a sweet spot in the middle there which is that productive tension but like what what does that do for an organization you know you mentioned innovation but what are some of the benefits of like really digging there what have you seen when teams are able to really dig into the tensions that exist amongst the membership or amongst the you know the team what happens for that team? What's the... Yeah, I mean, for one, and, and this is going to be, you know, from the heart, right? It's, it's just that deeper level of connection with the people that you're spending your days with. You know, the people that are, you know, like a second family, maybe even to you, right? So I think that just deepening relationships um, with the people that you're working towards something great with, like that's, that's a, a nice first um, benefit. <laughs> Other than that, like I, like you said, it's the innovation and the ideation. I I can't tell you how many times I've th- thought like that I know something, and that you know like ah I figured it out, and then you know I have a, a a really great you know conversation with tension and conflict and different perspectives, and and I, my mind's changed. And when your mind's changed, that's a, that's a beautiful thing because it opened up so many other doors. It's it's opened up doors in finding new strengths and skill sets that I never thought I could develop, right? Because, you know, like around coaching and mentoring, um, you know, it, so I think it, tension opens up doors to other opportunities that you otherwise wouldn't have seen. Um, and, and I, and I think tension is something you can do with yourself. I've done it. You know, I've been in hospital rooms for a long time, uh, going crazy, talking to myself, right. And journaling. Uh, and I've, and I've held those, those moments of tension with myself. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, you know, we talked, 
Kimberly and I did a webinar just this week, I think, or last week around, and there's kind of those three places that tension can show up or, or, or harmony, like this artificial harmony can show up in like interpersonal relationships, one-on-one with people in it, like a team environment, but also within self, right? Mm-hmm. We can, we can develop this like status quo, don't lean into the tension in our own life and, and get to this place of values and congruence, right? So we're caring about one thing, but acting in a different way. And I actually think if I have to point to like the root of a lot of dysfunction in our lives, it's that it's values, tension, it's values and congruence. It's, yes. I, I care about this thing, but I'm behaving in a way that's like, would indicate that I didn't care about that thing, right? Or vice versa. But it's that tension there that causes the stress that we find ourselves under often. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and then leaks out into all kinds of unhelpful ways um, in our own life. Yeah. And I, and you know, that, that type of like, even like ourselves going through it, like there's moments, it's uncomfortable and, and it can be tiring, but once you break through it, like just to answer your question, man, the innovation, the ideation, the creativity, and by creativity, I don't, I don't mean like an art, like it could be artistic, but I just mean anything it could be a perspective, a behavior, an experience, a service, a product. It, I've just seen teams just, first of all, they become more highly engaged. Second of all, there's higher levels of trust. They, you know, like there's a great podcast actually by, I think it's Adam Grant and with Trevor Noel. I'll try to get these resources up for people. And it talks about how his team comes in every day and through their system of, of, they call it bursting, where they're just working so well together with tension and uh, they're able to create amazing show. I mean, if you like it, it's an amazing show. (laughs) And so, yeah, I love that. Um, I, you know, the one thing I will point out about tension is, and I, and I use, I tend to have this is I want to fix problems, right? I love problems and we all, we all love them. And what I've realized, and part of this was through my health journey, but also just, you know, with, with getting into tension actually with others is not every problem can be solved. And sometimes it's about just being there for somebody or helping them manage that problem. Or as Kim puts it, I love this dancing with the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's probably been, I would say in the last five years of my, of my career is a big lesson that was like, whoa, I don't, I can't, I don't need to solve these problems. In fact, they're not solvable. Mm-hmm. Or they're not my problem. <laughs> or they're not my problem. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. a, that's a turning point in and of itself. Yeah. Just realizing the problems are mine and what's somebody else's and choosing which ones I'm going to tackle. Um, for sure. And this is Kamala T by the way. Uh, you can swear and you can drink on this podcast. It's uh, it's oh, it's a late man. night show. It's eight thirty. The kids are in bed. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's that point. Like, we won't hit conflict too hard because we've got. We'll probably do some other podcasts around that. We, I, I would love to get to some of these other pieces um, that we can chat about. But you know, the, the one thing I think around tension in in organizations and conflict in particular is when we step back from the desire or the objective of solving the problem of solving the conflict to simply understanding it. Right. If we can create the space that can we understand this tension and what it means for the people that are in the room, that that's 95% of the work, right? Once you get real with each other and you have a real conversation about what this tension means, right? Then we're coming, then we can take that problem and locate it and we can work together towards it because so often we internalize tensions and we like, they think we think that they're a problem with us right like i i have i am the problem or somebody else on the team is the problem and we really individualize it right and i think that the first step in really getting through tensions is to externalize it and say actually this problem exists and we can both we can name it and we can like work on it together yeah and actually that's that's a great transition um over to human-centered design because um a lot of the time people like when we're working with clients through human centered design, they, they think they have a problem, but they're really explaining like the solution that they want. <laughs> or the right? symptom, symptom of a problem. <laughs> or the symptoms yeah. of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, sorry. The one other thing I will say that I feel organizations need more of these days. And, and, and this is something that I think people are noticing nowadays when they're at home, you know, you're wearing so many hats and, you know, switching all through those hats throughout the day, but your environment's not switching. So mentally that's, that's heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, is just moments of mindfulness. Um, so if organizations can help to create those moments, you know, those safe spaces where people can reflect, I think right now people are panicked for, for various reasons. You know, I, I got to look like I'm busy, uh, you know, or oh, we're short of staff and I got to pick up the slack. And so everybody's in a reaction mode. Mm-hmm. And reaction mode, you know, sometimes people get comfortable with that. Right? If we're busy, we don't actually have to change and transform. 
And so I would challenge organizations to create those, um, you know, create space for mindfulness so that you can challenge yourself to grow. Because I've seen too many organizations say, I'm too busy for that right now. I'm overwhelmed. And where is that going to get you? I think there's an old Buddhist saying that's, you know, everyone should meditate for 20 minutes a day unless they don't have time and then they should meditate for two hours. Right. That's, uh, that's, and I don't do enough meditating or mindfulness. So this is a good reminder for me uh, to dig into that practice a bit more. What do you do for mindfulness? What do you, what are some of your practices? Yeah. So I'm married to a counseling psychologist who uh, was first off a Reiki master and Zen Shiatsu practitioner. So I've been, um, I've seen different ways to practice <laughs> mindfulness. You know, we, her and I are so different. My wife, Laura and I, mine, honestly, for me is taking a walk outside. Just like the way the air smells, being in the trees, um, you know, even sometimes going with my daughters, just that connection to nature that it grounds me. Um, and I've done some of my best reflection there. Um, so I don't, I, I don't think mindfulness is necessarily something you have to sit cross-legged with lotus leaves and, or flowers in the background with some great music. I mean, I've done that and that's, you know, I just, I'm not that flexible, so it doesn't work for me. But uh, <laughs> honestly, it, it's just finding that state where, um, you know, you can be grateful for the things that you have. I feel like, and I, and, and I still find myself doing this. You know, you think of achievement and, and, you know, being sick, I, you know, there, there's times where I have to shake my head because I'm like thinking, oh, I've, I was sick for 10 years. I've got 10 years to make up from. It's like, well, what am I going after? I've learned most of the, you know, important experiences throughout this, like be grateful for this, sit with this, you know? And, and so, you know, even someone I think who's gone through things like, like you and I have with our health, we still need to make space for this because we get caught in the game. <laughs> totally. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm guilty of that. And I think this morning, actually, I was trying to get my newsletter out the door because it's Monday and that's what I do. And my three-year-old was poking at me and petitioning for my attention. And I'm like, what am I trying to achieve here? Like, why? This is just a to-do on my checklist. Like, what, what could possibly be more important today <laughs> than going and playing Lego right now with my son? Right? Nothing. Like, And so it's that moment-to-moment awareness, I think, of and keeping our values as close to the forefront of our of our consciousness like because otherwise it's really easy to get disconnected from them and it's easy to get onto the the status quo and just you know the treadmill at least for me anyway um, finding ways to remind myself of my values has helped to guide my behavior and, and reduce the tension that exists when we're operating kind of misaligned with that or the friction that comes from that um, i totally agree i i was gonna say like probably what I think takes the most guts is, is getting to your core values, the ones that are non-negotiable and won't change with whatever happens externally. And I like to tell people like it took me losing my guts. It actually took my guts five feet of them. Uh, I had to have surgery after, um, you know, my battle with, uh, ulcerative colitis. Um, I made the decision to do that because I had to let something go to gain something. Um, and you know what? And here's the the gratitude. I've recently found out a lot of my dad's family is in Peru, so there's not too many documented records on health. But there's colon cancer there. Uh, you know, three of his or sorry, two of his brothers have passed away, and then numerous cousins have had issues with colon cancer. So you know, me sitting here with ulcers in my uh, large intestine for ten more years, who knows what that could have led to? And so, mm-hmm. I'm grateful that I'm 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 healthy where I'm at right now, and. And, uh, and I have the relationships I have, so. Yeah. No. Yeah, the relationship with the, the illness. I don't know where you're at with yours, but mine, a turning point for me was the, and it f- happened fairly quickly for me because my biological father actually passed away when I was just over a year old, um, a big heart attack, and turns out might have been some you know, pre-diabetes and those types of things. It kind of runs around the family a little bit, heart conditions and things. And so for me, it's like, and I was diagnosed late 20s, um, and so that was a turning point for me. I was like, oh shit, like this is actually a great thing. Like this is a, like a daily reminder. I've got a patch in my arm that sends blood sugar readings to my phone so that I'm constantly reminded of the need to like eat well, exercise and like re- keep my stress down, right? And I don't know what better gift you could get in your late 20s than that, right? As opposed to, you know, waiting to have that heart attack when you're 40 or 50 after you've, you know, neglected yourself for so long. So for me anyway, that, that was a turning point. Yeah, I, and imagine what that's going to mean for our children to grow up with a different sense of, you know, well-being, right? You know, sleep, the importance of sleep. Man, I, I, 
you know, I know there's differing opinions on sleep, but for me, I need it. And I've noticed a huge difference. And then nutrition, I like Jeff, you know, both of us have a certain nutrition that we follow to feel nourished and healthy. And so where I'm at with my, um, I guess, uh, journey with ulcerative colitis is I'm considered colitis free because they took it out of me. Um, but I still have, uh, you know, it's been three years. I had three surgeries. I had to have actually a, an ostomy, a bag for uh, a portion of a year, which, which, you know, for a young fit guy was, you know, really messed with my, and then I was on prednisone, which you can't tell now, but my face, I mean, I already have a big jaw. Imagine this thing on prednisone, <laughs> you know, looked like a microphone. And so, but it really messed with my, my self-confidence, or at least what I thought my self-confidence was at the time, you know, not feeling attractive to my wife, having to go out and wear a bathing suit, like, you know, all the things that a lot of people go through for, for, in their world as well. But it was just a humbling experience. So where I'm at now is I still need to practice mindfulness, right? Because, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I've got this competitive nature in myself. And as long as it's about nourishment and not achievement and my values are, you know, are being met, I feel like I'm thriving. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, I think both of those things, I think mindfulness in the workplace and, and not the cross-legged chanting to something. If, if that works for people, that's if that works again, if, again, but I think it's the, the awareness, right? The intentional awareness and the gratitude practices. And like, there's a, there's a plethora of different mindfulness, I think techniques and practices that, um, certainly have helped me and sound like they've helped you. And I think there's, there's actually really good research around it. We were doing some research in the addiction treatment program that I was um, a part of for a number of years, about a dozen years of work in the addiction sector. And we actually started tracking the, the impact of a, a change in mindfulness over time with our clients um, kind of anecdotally it started. And then we started to get more serious about it. And we actually found that increased levels of mindfulness over time with our young people directly correlated to significant decreases in a variety of indicators of wellness or like stress. And so interpersonal relationship stress symptoms of um, depression and anxiety, those types of things. And there's actually, there's a growing and pretty robust body of literature out there that says mindfulness helps everybody. Oh, just, for sure. just about everything. So um, that's great advice. And then the tension piece, leaning into tension and using harnessing that tension because it exists, right? There isn't a team out there. There isn't a relationship out there that doesn't have some tension in it, right? And to ignore it or to deal with it in an unhealthy way doesn't get us through to that like creative space where something new is possible or a new perspective emerges or a shared understanding um, comes out of that. So those are two great pieces. Yeah, I would, and I would just touch on the mindfulness. You asked me what I do. The other two things, and this might be helpful to, to people. I'm not a big journaler. Uh, I tried. My wife's got buckets of journals, and it's so great when she reads back the memories, like when I, you know. Um, and so what I've invested in lately, and it's been working, has been, I'm sure people have heard of the five-minute journal. You can get the app. It's $4.99. Uh, and it's great. It, it sets reminders in the morning, three things you're grateful for. So you start your morning with mindfulness, uh, a little bit of a ritual of mindfulness in the morning. And I tell you, like, it just, it starts off the day great. You know, you set some intention for your day. Um, you can take pictures so you can capture those moments, which then could be, you know, part of the journal that you want to share maybe with your kids or whoever. Um, and then at the end of the day, you, you, you do your, um, you know, what did you accomplish and how do you feel? And so that's been a good exercise. I would say I'm like once every two days I'm getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's definitely something about writing or typing it down that makes it and going back to it after. Um, that's pretty special. Yeah, for sure. Makes it makes it a bit more concrete and yeah. less abstract. I think sometimes we get like the gratitude practice becomes like the same thing because it's like, yeah, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful for, but I'm actually just like super grateful for something very specific, right? And I'll have to think about something for, for this conversation that I'm grateful for. We can do a little gratitude share at the end, maybe. Uh, yeah. And I'll just say like, if you've got kiddos, this is a growth mindset. Do you know this? Or we've got a couple of those for the nine-year-old and we ordered one for a different version for the six-year-old recently. So uh, they're amazing. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Let's, Let's invite any questions or comments that people have. If you're just tuning in to just 
follow along and listen, that's all great too. But if you have a mindfulness practice that you really enjoy or that helps ground you and anchor you to your to your life, I'd love to hear about it because I'm always looking to expand my toolkit and I'm sure other listeners are as well. So a little share would be great. Uh, or any comments, questions that you have for Pablo uh, that you'd like to know more about his journey um, and his experiences with health and wellness and and we're going to start we're going to shift gears at this point into uh, the employee experience and human-centered design and you know i use employee experience as a pretty big bucket of conversation but maybe it's the human-centered design piece let's start there around and we kind of alluded to it with problem solving and we kind of meant we dropped it but what is a what is a human-centered design and yeah fill, fill us in as if i don't know anything because i probably don't yeah, no, you do, Jeff. You do. I think a lot of us do it daily in our lives just for different things. And it's just now being, it, it's such a, I, for me, it's a mindset and a tool, right? So it's a, it's a way of thinking, but also a way to move people because they're at the center of it. So that's, that's how I would, that's how I use it in my practice. Um, you know, there's, there's tons of great resources out there, you know, from, IDO to Overlap Associates to Habanero Consulting Group, J5, that are, you know, these are local organizations that, you know, you and I have been working with. Um, and everybody's got their way of explaining how they use it in, in their practice. So I, I really like the way I think it was IDO, um, how they explain how these are all, you know, tied together. And so it's about connection, right? So feeling empathy. So I'm feeling with you now in this moment. I'm understand. We're, we're gaining a shared understanding of the experiences that you're going through. Um, you know, whether it's a product, a service, and so forth. The, so connection is number one. Really connecting to that human being that you're designing for at the center. The second uh, part they talk about, which I really agree, is the ideation. And so this is where we get to tap into our beautiful minds. You know, and this is where trust, psychological safety, all that can just add to this experience. Um, this is where we get to do some divergent thinking, ideation, really have fun. Like for me, that's probably the funnest part of the whole process. You know me, I've got, my brain goes everywhere and I love to do divergent thinking and you and Kim help to converge me. Um, and so, so that's the second part, ideation. And then third would be, you know, what's called prototyping, but you know, like you and I have, uh, experienced it. It's really moving to action. How can we take something and not just, try to make it as perfect as possible. It takes a year before we start to put it out. And, you know, how can we make something as fast as possible? You'll hear the terms minimal viable solution, website, product, service. How can we get something out based on what we've learned and, and, and ideated around and start to test and learn more from and iterate? So I would say, you know, human-centered design, it's a mindset for me anyways, and a tool. Um, and it's about building connection. It's about ideating. And about building prototypes, so bias to action, getting activation going right away. What problems does it solve? Like why? Big, hairy, ambiguous problems. Big, <laughs> it's great for ambiguity problems. and uncertainty. Yeah. yeah. Which, there's no shortage of. Which there's no shortage in, of. In our world. There never has been, but it's amplified now, I think. Um, the pace of change has started to increase, it seems. Um, so that let's talk, Let's can we dig into it a little bit? And yeah. talk through like some of the, maybe some, some tips or some resources or some things that what are the challenges of human like maybe let's start there what if somebody says okay let's let's do a human-centered design process and you have i've run a couple of these with clients over the last year or two and we certainly learn like it's a learning process you learn every time but what are some of the more common pitfalls that people are going to bump up against when they step into that first phase which is really that empathetic research trying to get as close to the kind of the desired user, the human that we've centered in the middle. Maybe that's the first problem. Maybe I answered my own question is that we actually don't center humans in most of our processes. There you center, go. You know, the needs <laughs> of the system or the needs of the company. But aside from that, what, uh, how can we, how can we do that phase? Well, or what are some of the things that you think about? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned one of them uh, a few minutes ago around like stepping away from problem solving like truly understanding, like building up empathy for the people you are trying to serve or design for and truly understanding who they are. So I, empathy is the number one, right? Um, and, and I think a lot of organizations for different reasons struggle with that. I, you know, things I typically hear, oh, we know them. And it's like, okay, you know them as you know them, but imagine like there's other ways we can, you know, through, for example, ethnographic research, we could install ourselves in their homes 
we can install if we're talking about a consumer or if we're talking about employees, we can observe them in their workplace. You know, there's digital ways to do this too now, given all the, um, you know, COVID challenges. But I think a lot of time organizations feel like they've done this work and they know it already. And so what I've learned in my experience as a consultant and practitioner in this space is we know what it takes to really to, to take someone through this experience. And one thing that doesn't work is trying to drag them along in this process. And in fact, it's kind of ironic because we need to learn empathy and meet them where they're at, right? And so sometimes it's about validating what they've already done. So I would say a mistake I see is when someone, you know, says, wow, this would be an amazing tool to, to use for this problem that we have. And they just try to like follow a process or, you know, say apply here, like fill in the blanks. That's not how it works. There's, there's a bit of agility and adaptiveness that is required for it. Um, and that's the beautiful thing. And I think like, you know, I think our example, Jeff was, uh, you know, there's this thing called the five day design sprint where you can get in there and, and, and go through the whole process in five days. Well, we realized we weren't going to be able to do that with one of our clients. So we actually came up with the term. And I don't think we made it up. I think it's out there, but a design wave, right? So I would say, so to answer your question, I think it's the mistake I see people making with this is to say, here it is. Here's the formula of the recipe. Here's the ingredients, plug and play. That's not how it works. Mm -hmm. That's not designing for human beings. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just like just another rigid process that we install as like any other planning or design kind of process um it loses its humanness it loses empathy as soon as you try and get rigid with it and structure and try and force people through it so that's a great great insight because i think that's probably the temptation especially when you're first introduced to it it's like oh i just have to ask these questions in this order uh, yes. and we move on to phase two right it's like it's, it doesn't actually work that way um yeah, and I piece around validation as well. Like they, there probably mm -hmm. is some information out there, some assumptions that people have, and we can go and validate assumptions. We don't necessarily have to start from scratch. And and you know, I always try and go in with like, I don't know anything about this because usually I don't. Like usually, like legitimately, <laughs> I actually have no idea what the experience is like. So to like fill me in. But if we have some, if we have some assumptions and best guesses, we can validate those um, through the research as well. Yeah, yeah, and I would say like. I, I've learned to, it's really important to learn who's leading this work and, and the culture of the organization, right? Like, what are the commitments they made? What are their beliefs? What are their habits and behaviors? Like, how is this truly like the mindset and tool that's going to work at this time? Um, so just being aware of that as well. It, it's not always the right, you know, mindset and tool to use. Um, but I think in this time that we're going through right now, it's a very human problem. And I think it's really relevant to solving a lot of the problems that exist right now or dancing with them. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, phase two. So we've done some empathetic research. We haven't done it too structured. We've been pretty agile with it and we're stepping into ideation, brainstorming, looking for possible solutions or ideas for solutions. Um, this problem what are some of the things that teams get stuck in and you mentioned psychological safety and trust as a bit of an underpinning or a foundation for that process to be effective or as effective as we want it to be um can you dig into that a little bit can you tell me a bit more about why like the mechanisms of that and, and how and what maybe some examples of times you've seen that go really well and times that you've seen ideation maybe go poorly or not not have the the desired effect yeah. I mean, so maybe one step back, like I think when we're doing the empathy piece, I think it's important where I see um, teams have some good conflict is around who actually are we designing for? Because a lot of the times it's like designing for us so we can do a better job for them, you know, which is important to understand what's the, you know, what's going to happen in the backstage of things in order for the front experience to be great. But um, I've seen a lot of teams go back and forth with that. So you mentioned this earlier. I just want to repeat it because I think it's important like asking the right questions to ensure that we're solving the right problem or at least looking at the right problem. Second is getting very clear on who we're designing for, right? Um, and I think those are conversations that I've seen teams rush through a little bit or get mixed up and then they realize, I mean, the great thing about design thinking is it's iterative. You can get to a certain point and realize, oh shit, and go back and, you know, and, and follow the process in a way. So. Moving into ideation, I think, yeah, like you said, like making sure that we create a space 
for all types of people actually to participate, right? So one thing I've learned is not everybody does great ideation work in a room, you know, with everybody watching, right? Just sticky notes and a, <laughs> and a whiteboard. Yeah. Exactly. Some people need time to reflect. Some people are shy, or, or, you know, maybe more introverted and not really as comfortable. And so I think, you know, get to know your team. I love this. I can't remember who said it, but one size fits one. Like understand who's going to be in those sessions and design that experience specifically for that group, knowing, you know, what is going to be the best way to unleash some of that ideation and creativity. So, and you and like, for example, you and I get to know the individuals. And when we were, remember when we were doing those breakouts, we were thinking, what would that dynamic be? like for those individuals we thought of how can we what can they do together what can they do apart right um, what are the different tools we can give them to i know moving to the next place to start to build so i think we you know as facilitators are just we really need to be designing that experience for that team that's going through that process mm-hmm. yeah no that's uh that one size fits one i think i might have mentioned that because i picked it up from a, a vice principal at a high school that i did a bunch of work with a couple of years ago and that was her mantra one size fits one and that's yeah, i love it what, what led their team and i think it's a it's a it's a, a very useful perspective because i think teams and leaders get into a one size fits all perspective that actually doesn't fit anybody right like at the end of the day um and i think both of us have probably experienced that in our workplaces before right this one size fits all approach that that lacks meaning um I'm Sorry, the other thing I'll add, Jeff, because it's it's something you've taught me more and more about is the right use of power. And I and my my knowledge is limited on it, but the way what I would say is, you know, if it's also for people that are in the room. So if you're a leader and you've, you know, you gotta understand your power and what that's going to do to the dynamics within that team. And so it's just something to be aware of and there's not an answer to it. It's just like, what's your, how are people going to engage knowing you're there? Um, and some, you know, some leaders are like, Oh, but they, I always hear this. They, they'll say whatever they want to say in front of me. They won't. Yeah, we know <laughs> they that. won't. We know that. They so tell us as coaches, when we go in and we hear all like the inner thoughts of people's heads, we're like, well, why isn't that coming out in the meetings? Right. It's because the boss is sitting in that meeting. That's why it's not like yeah. getting any ears. One, they're either scared of you. Two, they like you. They want to hurt your feelings, right? And then for so many other reasons. But so I think understanding that power and creating distributed power in those sessions, right? Um, Whatever that's going to take, whether it's like a physical like wand that, that, you know, people psychologically feel empowered in the moment that they hold it to to be sharing. Or, um, you know, there's other techniques to do that as well. So I I think that's super important is just, you know, self-awareness for the teams that are going into these ideation sessions and the other thing is the other mistake i see teams making is they right away start to converge like leave the conflict the critic uh you know the criticizing to later like right now the the goal is just get the craziest biggest ideas out there because you'll get more than what you expected mm-hmm. so that's another one i would say yeah we actually like I find myself having to establish brainstorming rules with groups of adults where it's like this is what <laughs> brainstorm actually looks like. And this is what yeah. we have to do to make it effective because we're so quick to even self-censor our own ideas, right? We judge our own ideas as we're writing them and see people like crumpling up their stuff. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're like, not allowed to do that, right? You yes. get it on the table because we, yeah, we, we, we self-limit accidentally, unintentionally kind of keep ourselves stuck a little bit in the status quo because we don't allow ourselves to maybe go to that place of you know really big picture ideas and totally you know off the wall solutions so yeah that's another thing we hear i hey jeff like people some people are like oh i'm not creative that's not me i'm not that type it's like you're a human being you create every day so i i you know i you know as much as people might hate icebreakers yeah there's some bad ones so don't do the bad ones i we could probably share a bunch that we have um, after with guests but you know a good icebreaker will start to will introduce people to what creativity is truly about and show them that they have it within them and will give them the confidence to participate and so i think that's an important thing to do as well because i think you know we we might you know some people in the room might limit themselves by saying oh that's just not me um but in reality they've sometimes they've created some of the best um you know solutions or ideas out there Mm -hmm. no for sure 
Stick people win the game. You know what? I, I love the saying, uh, and I'm, I, hopefully I get it right. Be childlike. Not childish, but childlike. <laughs> childlike with curiosity. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, there's actually, there's a really good, it's a study. I don't forget where it's out of. I'll find the study and I'll link it up somewhere. Um, it's the marshmallow tower challenge where you have to build a marshmallow tower out of spaghetti and marshmallows. And I stopped doing them in workshops because like I've been subjected to so many of them as a participant and they like were never that meaningful for me. Uh, But there's really good research around there where they took a bunch of different groups and kindergartners, I think college students, CEOs, lawyers, a bunch (laughs) of different groups and gave them this challenge who can build the tallest tower in a certain amount of time. That's it. Like that was the only constraint and the kindergartners crushed it. And like crushed the competition over and over and over again. And it was because of just like wild abandon, lots of creativity, lots of experimentation, lots of like, oh, that's working. Let's do more of that. Let's break it down. Lots of fluid leadership, right? No, like versus, you know, get a group of CEOs in the room and they're like planning and they're like delegating and they're making like they're building a a structure and a hierarchy around it. And so it's, there's fascinating research out there about creativity and how like, I think being childlike is probably how we get back to actually doing that better oh for sure i mean you can attest to this how many lessons have our kids taught us (laughs) (laughs) for sure um okay so we've done we've done some empathy research we've gotten closer as close as we can to the 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 challenges that the the humans that we're designing for whether they're clients or customers or employees um we've done some ideation some brainstorming with how might we like big blue sky thinking and then what what happens after that? What's the what's the process? Yeah, then it's. Uh, I mean, for, for for us, it's. I I'm trying to think back to the the way we did. We really, I thought we did a great job. Um, well, the team did a great job of transitioning from that ideation really quickly into prototyping. And so, you know, with with pro- prototyping is a really for me is also a fun. It's it's taking those ideas and starting. I think there's a step, obviously, sorry, uh, between prototyping where you start to converge on some of those ideas. And this is where tension, you know, if you've really done well, tension can really lead to some great decisions being made on, you know, what are the ideas we're going to experiment with or prototype with? And so, again, it, it depends on, you know, a, a multitude of factors like time, budget. But um, let's just say you can only work on one idea. Uh, that's where you're diverging into that one idea and you're starting to well, what we did, which I think is a cool exercise, was start to paint the art of the possible, uh, which was a step in between. Because we, what we, I think what we did in our last projects is we actually passed it over to a designer. So we needed to capture that story before passing it on. But if a team's going to be doing it, they can likely maybe skip this step. Though I wouldn't. It's it's pretty it's pretty fun to do to to write these storyboards. You know, whether they're comic strips or what did we do? There was a couple other different ways. Was it comic yeah, strip storyboards? Mostly comic strips, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, that one, I, I, in my experience, works really well. Um, when you give people different tools that they can use to create the storyboard, uh, we did comics, um, because people connect around it. It's, it's funny, but it's also, it gives them an idea of what that experience with a service or a product or, or, or an experience is going to be like um, for the end users they're designing for. And so we then pass that on, and right away, it's built take what you have and start building. And, and again, like it depends what you're building, right? There's, there's great software out there like um, Figma for building apps and and online experiences. Um, You can build using everyday household items, again, being childlike, like cardboard, um, uh, you know, um, I can't even Play-Doh, things like that. It really depends what you want to, what you want to prototype with. But the essence of it is making that, taking that idea and making it real. Make it real, tangible tangible concrete so that you can then experiment with it get feedback maybe from intended users right get some like there's a there's a a feedback cycle or test and experiment piece once you have your prototype yeah yeah you'll have i mean obviously you'll have your core users that you can go back to and say we listened we we felt with you and and this is where we got to and we'd love you know and walk them through testing you know that prototype and and engaging and interacting with it and um, even that's an art, right? Um, trying not to lead somebody and just trying to have them struggle. It's tough to watch people struggle, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it depends what you're building. You probably don't want them to struggle too much. And, but just really like observing how they engage with your prototype will teach you a lot. 
Um, and I think, you know, here's one thing I learned and I always, and I tell you, like, it's great if you can to always have more than one person doing these observations and this, obviously this creation as well, because again, diversity, just different perspectives. Like I can't tell you how many times I've heard something and made sense or meaning of it in my mind only to have my like co-facilitator say, well, that's not what I heard. Right. So imagine I would have done that on my own. Right. So I, so I think that's a, so yeah, you're taking the prototype, you're testing it, you're getting feedback and it's an iterative process. And so you know, I've seen teams say, oh, crap, we totally missed the ball. Bad idea. Well, good thing we didn't invest all our time, life, and money on this thing. Boom, on to the next thing. Um, that happens less frequently, but it's happened. More more, more so, it's like, oh, great. We're, we're so much further than we thought we would be by now. And now it's, you know, how do we move it to that next level? How do we build a team around this? Maybe it becomes a practice. Maybe it becomes a new line, right, for the business. Um, or maybe you need to go back and actually mm, – you know, iterate on it and make it stronger. But the idea is you're running these experiments and you're learning and innovating on the go. Yeah. And the big problem that this, this process and this like mindset and tool kit solves for is ambiguous, uncertain, chaotic environments and, and time horizons probably like there's a, there's a, there's an essence of speed in this that a lot of us and a lot of organizations are slow to adapt right and yes. rapidly changing in my environment and if your processes aren't as rapid as the environment in which you find yourself in right you end up being out of touch out of sync and we see that happening all the time our, our institutions can't keep up with the pace of change and that tension can cause bankruptcies if you're a business right you go out of business right and if you're a, a, a social institution um you you, you you struggle with delivering your services, right? Or you you can't meet the, the demands of that that have arisen for your services. We're certainly seeing that in the social sector um, right now with with lots of need and, and kind of some slow moving uh, institutions that uh, govern those. So yeah, I think that you know I think it is one tool in the toolkit. Um, this design thinking, human centered design. But I think it's I think you're right in that it's a very important one for the time and age that we're living in right now. Yeah, I mean at the end of the day even if you're building technology, even AI systems, like they all touch human beings. (laughs) Like human beings are at the center of of everything. Like I'm sure we could have a debate on that, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, it all comes back to to us as the beings on this, (laughs) on this earth. So, and it begs the question, if we're not centering humans, we're not doing human centered, like what is it we're centering? Exactly. What are we putting Exactly. Right. How are we making people's lives better? (laughs) And when you got that gets uncomfortable pretty fast when we ask those <laughs> questions of leaders, it's like, what exactly, who is this for? Right. Yeah. What are we designing for that? Uh, it, it brings that tension to the surface pretty quick. Um, for sure. Yeah. It's, and, and here's the thing, like, it's not going to go perfect. It's, it's actually not supposed to mm-hmm. it because it's going to expose uh, gaps, you know, whether they're skill sets or processes or, or potentially values but it's also going to expose like things that you do actually really well and you should be doing more of. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the beauty of it. It's your, it's, it's kind of like the growth mindset. You're just continually educating yourself and growing, right? Not just you as an individual, but your team, your, your organization. Um, and, it, and it's, and it's so powerful. So I've read the book, design your life, actually the end design your career, which takes a human centered design approach to your own. Um, and I can tell you right now, like, that's the thing, these things that you will practice at work, you'll be able to carry over into your life, you know, with your own relationships and your own problems, right? Um, in the household or, or with friends or whatever. And so that's the power of it is that it, it's human, but us. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure my kids at some point will clue into the fact that I do lots of things with them that I do in my consulting practice. <laughs> yeah. How might we solve for that? How might we your succession planning already <laughs> totally am. yeah work myself out of a job <laughs> yeah. uh, wonderful well i won't keep you too long i know uh i, I already value the 53 minutes that you spent uh, digging into some of these topics with me um what what else do you think is important maybe let's if, spend just a couple of minutes quickly we'll round this out with leadership conversation mm-hmm. around maybe adaptive capacity because that's a, i know that's a uh, focus for you right now is to help build a, adaptive capacity into organizations and on, into teams. What kind of leadership do we need? Uh, what do we need to think about or do with our leadership practice that's going to foster that 
adaptive capacity because it's one thing to give tools like human-centered design but if they don't get deployed because of leadership's biases or stubbornness or lack of whatever right then you know all roads lead to leadership all roads lead to power so let's round this conversation out let's talk about power and leadership and uh, adaptive capacity oh gee that's a that's one way to end off eh? that's a big topic bang well uh well well maybe it's just a teaser for the next conversation as well but um yeah for me adaptive capacity you know i talked about resiliency a lot today you know just as human beings um it's one of our strengths we just need to tap into and i think what we've done on our team is we've added someone with a skill set around personal coaching so i think you know just really you know utilizing that skill set to really help leaders break through maybe some biases or mindsets that haven't helped them like there's a level of trust we need to build and and, and vulnerability like it's i've 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 been on the leadership team for you know a global organization and for one of the best workplace or the best workplace in canada for 100 employees and under being even in an organization that was flat that had an amazing culture as a leader you, you feel there's moments where you're alone and you're alienated and and i think so just have i mean that's why we call ourselves the ally code just having someone or a team of people that have been there for you to allow you to open up and invite your team in to, to work differently. Um, I think that's the beginning. So start with the leader, start with the culture. Cause the cult, the leader at the end of the day is, is accountable for the culture. They might have an HR or an employee experience individual like myself, who's responsible for, you know, working to design and develop the experiences. But at the end of the day, it's like you said, all roads lead to leadership and power. So start there. The adaptive capacity is, helping organizations from the inside out and outside in like i think it's a holistic approach to build up resiliency to so human-centered design is a great way to be lean and adaptive because at the end of the day there are external forces that organization will not be able to control but if you've got really strong a sense of purpose right and alignment with a, a noble cause or a vision that people are willing to you know carry on the torch for when you're gone and so, you know, you've got this direction that everybody's aligned and moving on. I love the analogy of a, of a ship in the ocean, right? Like there's these winds blowing. Well, if you've got adaptive capacity, you know how to use the wind to your advantage or to move with the wind. It might not be a straight line. I think too many companies try to go straight line, right? And then you, if, you, if you've got the skills and the capabilities, you'll navigate, you'll understand where the rocks are. <laughs> right um if you if you've got tools like human-centered design you can start to pull up those anchors or cut them loose the things that are holding you back right so i think adaptive capacity if i think of an analogy is just being able to from the individual level from leadership all the way down to you know the frontline staff person um to just have that resiliency and that adaptiveness to move uh, with the external forces there's so much more Jeff I'm, I just had enough for the ship analogy that's perfect and that actually is a good segue into the next time I have you on the show so we'll just line up a round two where we'll, okay. we'll, Sounds good. we'll dig more deeply into the, the leadership aspect of this because you know I know that's a passion of both of ours is to improve improve the leader experience um, and the team experience at large but leaders like you say it, it can be a very lonely job and it can feel like there's a ton of pressure right to solve problems mm-hmm. to have the answers to know what's what and in, a, in an environment you know we just don't right i've been in that position as a leader and like i actually don't know what's going on and i need the help of my team or i need the help of somebody else and so that asking for help the vulnerability that comes with asking for help i think you know both of us had that experience in our own life with our own health where we had to access help and that perspective around help like help is actually like really awesome. Like help is a a wonderful, beautiful thing. Right. And I don't have to go it alone. Right. Like maybe that's, and I'll have to do some reflecting on that. Maybe that's the thing that I'm grateful for is a new, new ability of mine that doesn't come naturally to, to me to ask for help. Um, but that's something that I've been doing more of lately. And, uh, and you're certainly somebody that I lean on when I need help with various things. And so I, uh, I thank you for that. And I thank you for joining me on the show tonight. Do you have anything that you're grateful for today that you want to, uh, round out the show? Yeah. I mean, I mean, if we're just here on this show, so, so thanks. I'm grateful for my first opportunity to do one of these, never done one of these. Awesome. You did. <laughs>
Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, thanks. And, uh, and, and I'm just grateful to be actually talking about something I care about. Right. Um, and working with people that see me for who I am and, um, yeah. And just on this journey of growth, I think like, I don't know, call some people call it a midlife crisis. I'm 39. I call it a, a an awakening where, you know, I'm starting to actually, um, you know, the best parts of me are hopefully coming out and it's because I'm around people like you. So I'm, I'm grateful for our friendship, Jeff. Well, thank you. That's, we got to end the show now. Cause I can't top, uh, <laughs> I can't top that as a closing. Um, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it very much. And I look forward to the journey ahead with you. And I will have you back on the show to dig into lots of other topics that we didn't have time to cover tonight. We could probably chat for a couple hours and uh, yeah. we will, but we'll do it in chunks because it's overwhelming if we do it all at once and, uh, you've got stuff to, to tend to and I do as well. Um, so thank you again. And thank you to everybody who tuned in tonight and anybody who's listening to this after the fact, you can always check out more of this show at jeffcoulard.com slash powerful. That's where all the, the shows get hosted after the fact and tune in next week for uh, actually a friend of both of ours, uh, Ernest Barbaric. He's uh, he's going to be on the show next week and we're going to be talking, we're going to be digging into this very similar conversation around navigating uncertainty and how do we step into leadership and take ownership of the future. Um, that's a, a passion of Ernest these days and so make sure you come back next week monday to uh listen in on my chat with Ernest barbaric uh papa thank you again so much and we'll talk to you soon thanks jeff i'm excited for that one i'm gonna see you soon Ernest. <laughs>